You've heard me talk about my preferred fish oil brand, Vital Nutrients, offering a line of 11 ultra-pure omega-3 solutions. Well, I'm happy to report that they also offer a great line of premium quality, clinically relevant, professional-grade products which help support optimal immune function, including quercetin, NAC, Viracon, and Aller-C. Quercetin supports healthy sinus and respiratory function. NAC delivers antioxidant support. Viracon is a unique herbal formula for comprehensive immune system support. And Aller-C provides respiratory histamine and sinus support. I'm so impressed with these products that I took them with me on my recent trip to Iceland. For more information and to order, go to vitalnutrients.co. That's vitalnutrients.co. Vital Nutrients products are formulated by healthcare professionals utilizing peer-reviewed research, bioavailable and bioactive ingredients in therapeutic doses. I take them and use them in my practice. Just go to vitalnutrients.co and check them out. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. The subject is sugar, its hidden dangers, and how to sugar-proof your child, because that's the title of a book written by today's guest, Dr. Michael Goran. Sugar-proof, the hidden dangers of sugar that are putting your child's health at risk and what you can do. And in part two, we're going to focus on some practical suggestions, what you can do. Uh, Dr. Goran, you co-wrote the book with um, Dr. Emily Ventura, uh, who I believe you worked with as a uh, academic colleague. And... Uh, I, I think it's a nice collaboration because, you know, you've done a lot of the basic research. Uh, she seems to be an expert on, on behavior modification and exhorting uh, people to make positive changes. And I, you know, her imprint is, is there in the book, especially in part two, where we talk about sugar-proofing strategies. Yeah, so actually Emily, Emily was a graduate student in my lab. Actually, at first she worked for me. As a research assistant, and she she very quickly real, realized that this was what she loved to do. So she did her PhD with me in health behavior, and then stayed on to work for me for for several years after that. And then that was that was more than ten or fifteen years ago. We've just stayed in touch ever since then because uh, she's a great writer as well, and the writing process was very iterative and was very helpful in kind of in translating some of this research. But yeah, she also developed the recipes in 39. We have 39 recipes in there and we work together on, on the meal plans and so forth. But we wanted to, you know, it's easy to say and it, many people say, oh, you just have to cut sugar. Don't drink soda, cut the juice. And you know that sounds very simple, but it's, this, is, this is about more than just information. You know, knowledge is not enough to to make lasting behavioral change. So we wanted to come up with strategies that were founded in, in behavioral theory and were easy to implement. And we've worked on that in our research over the years and learned a lot of stuff and wanted to translate it for everyday audience. So you come up with uh, seven sugar-proof strategies. Can you introduce us to them? Because, you know, being a parent is tough. Uh, you can control things at home sometimes if you're aware. Uh, but how do you limit sugar consumption outside the home? School, socialization, birthday parties, etc. cetera, uh, you know, without alienating the family, you know, well-meaning uh, relatives and grandparents. 
you know, sometimes get in the way of full implementation of your very correct program. And, you know, by the same token, you also don't want to produce an eating disorder in a child. You don't want to make the child feel like, you know, there's like landmines out there and that food is something to be fearful about. Yeah, and it would, you know, balancing those was always uh, forefront in our minds as we developed the program and developed the, the, the book. And because we didn't want to be over restrictive. And just to reiterate, to remind your listeners, we're not calling for a complete, you know, elimination of sugar. We know that that's, it's just not going to work. And it's all about recognizing. The sources of added sugar, making adjustments, and ultimately helping kids be able to self-regulate on sugar so that so they know they can feel when it's too much and can learn to make their own adjustments. But that's a key uh, word, you know, self-regulation, because, you know, the expression, uh, you know, give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day, teach a man to fish and he'll fish for a lifetime. I mean, we actually want... To raise kids, not just uh, conscious of prohibitions in the home, but with sort of a, you know, kind of a, uh, the balance, a balanced approach to to food, in general. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of a balance between the two. We know that the home environment is so important. Studies show that kind of a light touch on on rules on food at home can be beneficial outside of the home. And that doesn't mean to be like an overly restrictive rule. That could just mm-hmm. be something as simple as um, candies only at weekends or no soda during the week. Some, you know, something that works. And, and usually these things are short-lived and very quickly people grab onto them and it just becomes the new norm in the house. But the combination of those two are, 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 are quite important. And also another key aspect that we found from our research and translated into the book was is internal motivation. Mm-hmm. So, and talking to kids in a way that you can discover uh, what those internal motivations are and what would drive them to want to make a, a change, what motivates them. And oftentimes what motivates your kids will be very different from what you as as a parent might be motivated by. And you have to kind of listen to kids and talk to them in a way that you can get to the bottom of that. And that could be running faster on the soccer field or fitting into a new pair of jeans or having better skin. Mm -hmm. And once you find that internal motivation, it becomes quite powerful. You don't want to use external motivation for these types of changes like rewarding with money, for example, because then you're just stuck to pay your kid every time uh, <laughs> forever. You don't, you, you know, that's, that's not going to be sustainable. So it's all about finding sustainable solutions and internal motivations to, towards making change. And, and a part of it is to expose uh, kids to a wide variety of foods early on, but not in a, draconian fashion you know that's like you gotta eat that asparagus or else you're not leaving the table i mean that that kind of backfires but just just uh, encourage them to be experimental with food with textures to help to have them spend time in the kitchen with food preparation even if you have the good fortune to have a garden to have them work in the garden so that the child uh, has some 
um, incentive to uh, be involved in the food growing and preparation and consumption process uh, and have a better connection to food ingredients. Uh, I think, you know, that's something that we try to emphasize for, uh, uh, you know, the young kids in my family, age two and five. Uh, they spend a lot of time in the kitchen. They're fascinated by the process. They, you know, they taste this and that. You know, sometimes they don't like it. You know, they spit it out. They say it's too whatever, bitter or you know, too strong a taste. But they familiarize themselves with a wide variety of flavors and textures early mm -hmm. on rather mm -hmm. than getting hooked on, you know, on sweets and artificial flavors early. Yeah, that's critical. I think that's an important part. Of that. I mean, that was a big part of what Emily does, too. She trained in the, uh, with Alice Walter, and, and she mm. was the first intern at the Edible Schoolyard. Wow. Um, that was where she worked. And, and this concept could be as simple as, you know, if, if you don't have a garden, it could be as simple as just a herb flower pot in your kitchen or on your windowsill or something. So it doesn't have to be fancy. Um, any kind of involvement in the kitchen is, is going to be critical. Uh, so what about from a societal standpoint? You know, Mexico uh, recently enacted, at least one province of Mexico, I don't know if this is all Mexico-wide, uh, enacted a ban on soft drinks. There's a terrible obesity problem there. And as you mentioned, you know, uh, perhaps there's something about uh, Hispanic uh, genetics that predisposes more to diabetes and obesity. Uh, insulin resistance, but uh, they they took dramatic action. There's actually a ban on selling soft drinks to uh, children under a certain age. Um, you know, uh, some studies say soda taxes could work, but uh, the research suggests that they don't work in many cases, and also they're regressive. They penalize the very segments of the population that are least able to pay the freight of the extra taxes because affluent parents uh, don't feed their kids lots of soda. Um, where do you think it should go? Yeah, very, very difficult issue. We you know, find the final chapter of Sugar Proof. We talk about all those points. Um, sugar taxes have worked to a certain extent in terms of um, – reducing consumption, but, you know, the question is how much of a tax, and then the food industry is spending millions and millions of dollars to oppose them. I like the idea of uh, better uh, warning labels on foods. Uh, Chile, for example, has a system that's been quite effective in uh, in, in food, food labels to, to, to identify different levels of, uh, of of health risk. Food marketing is a big problem. Some countries are able to start addressing that, like the UK and Chile, uh, by limiting marketing of foods to children. And that's like, a big problem. Like identifying uh, cartoon characters with yeah. certain foods and things like that, you know, which is really like crack for kids brains you know that's really well, yeah, good I mean, to basically it. it's the, it's the same tactics it's even the same pr firms that developed all of the ads for tobacco yeah oh, really? or, and you know you, you can make the connections on that we talk about it in the book it's the same strategies even the same pr firms that are that are developing um animated characters on kids foods and kids snacks and so on to to hook them in early. So it's, it's kind of like uh, Joe Camel uh, to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Tony the Tiger. 
you know, for Frosted yeah. Flakes, right? <laughs> you know? Or cap cap Capri Sun flavored drinks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but, you know, we got to be, we got to be realistic. Is, are we ever going to get that happening in this country? It's good. It's, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not super, super um, confident that we're going to see big gains in that. I wish, I wish it wasn't like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so we think that we need consumers can families can make an impact because they, they're, they're buying the products. Mm -hmm. So that can make an impact. And I think that can v voting perhaps, with their consumer dollars, you know, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It took a while for them to establish conclusively that there was a link between cigarette smoking and heart disease and then cancer. And they pushed back and they pushed back. And finally it was incontrovertible. And then, began the lawsuits because, you know, uh, you know, you probably saw the movie, the insider with Russell Crowe, you know, the efforts by the tobacco industry, the tobacco industry, you yeah. probably at times feel a little like Russell Crowe because the kind of stuff you're saying flies in the face of a multi-billion dollar industry and it uh, may yeah. need to hire a bodyguard. But, uh, the prospect of uh, tobacco style litigation, because now the science is incontrovertible that excess mm -hmm. sugar and soft drinks in the diet contribute to disease. I think the, the links are, are not just circumstantial. Uh, they're direct and incontrovertible. And, you know, is, is, is that possibly a way, uh, to push back against the onslaught of, uh, these poor quality foods? Well, I hope so. You know, I mean, I, I hope that's the outcome of, some of the research that we've done and many other people have, have done. I was a big, there was a movement in California for a warning label on sodas, for example, mm -hmm. that it was just a very simple consumer warning label uh, linking soda consumption to tooth decay, obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. And I think those can have a big impact. Uh, of course, it didn't. It didn't fly, even in California. Mm -hmm. Even in progressive California, you know, with all kinds of regulations, you know. Yeah. Hmm. So it's it's so it's very hard even to uh, convince progressive legislatures to, to 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 adopt those types of strategies. Uh, in the book, you talk about how the, the labeling, although it, it's gotten a little better with regard to sugar uh, content in foods, uh, that it's still can be misleading. And so you advocate uh, more transparency in labeling. What would that look like? Well, certainly the new food labels uh, just just adopted this year and kind of and being transitioned through next year as well. They do differentiate added sugars, which helps a lot. So consumers are able to differentiate the natural sugars, let's say in a yogurt, there's sugar in a yogurt that comes from the dairy, from the lactose. Mm -hmm. But now uh, the food labels have to differentiate how much sugar is actually added to added it. Added sugar, yeah. Added sugar. Um, so that's 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 one strategy. But you know, we we talked about how um, some some sweeteners can be advertised as healthy, all natural, like mm -hmm. fruit-based sugars can still come under that rubric of all natural, all healthy products. And we haven't talked about the alternative sweeteners yet, but yep. this falls under this category as well because the natural sweeteners that are not caloric like stevia and monk fruit, for example, 
which we can talk about because they introduce a whole set of different problems, but mm-hmm. they can be advertised as all natural. Because, and zero, zero calorie. And zero calories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay, yeah, let's get into that because uh, I think you're uh, one of the few researchers uh, who has done a deep dive on what are called LCSs, low-calorie sweeteners, and uh, have come up with some potential downsides. Yeah, so so low-calorie sweeteners or non-nutritive sweeteners, basically ways to introduce sweetness without the calories, which the food industry is being um, trying to do for a long time because reducing calories would, would, would be helpful and they wanted to make food still palatable and sweet. Sucralose, ASK, aspartame are the, are the more common ones. But now we have a whole proliferation of other ones, um, some of which are natural, like stevia and monk fruit. But the research shows that those compounds, which we've just kind of accepted as, the, as normal, but some of them are very um, synthetic compounds that powerfully activate sweet taste receptors. It could be mm-hmm. thousands or even tens of thousands times sweeter. Mm-hmm. In fact, now they have sweeteners that are so sweet that you only need such a small amount, so small that it doesn't even have to be included in the food label now. So that's, that's um, how intensely sweet they are. But research is now showing that these compounds can activate sweet taste receptors that are located not just in the mouth, but throughout the body, mm-hmm. and essentially trick the body because mm-hmm. they, th- the activation of those receptors also says calories are coming. Mm-hmm. So the body thinks that calories are arriving, mm-hmm. but they never do. It's just a tease. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like a tease uh, on the one hand that then the body will extract the glucose from the blood because it thinks there's an excess of it. Mm, mm. And then blood glucose falls and you get hungry and you eat more. And studies even in children actually show that children who habitually consume low-calorie sweetened beverages actually consume more calories mm. throughout the day. Wow. And And then the other aspect is that it's... It's really all about sweetness as well, that we have to get sweetness. We have to, we have to dial back the sweetness of the diet. We don't, things don't need to be that sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's lots of ways to enjoy sweet treats without a low-calorie sweetener or without an added sugar. You, you know, uh, people listening to this might say, well, you know, I'm thinking of my, my child or my grandchild, you know, they're six or seven or eight, uh, and they're already like totally binging out on sweets. And I'd like to turn that around. Yep. Uh, but is it is it possible that there's a point of no return uh, where the brain is so hardwired to crave sweets uh, that it's impossible to uh, push back against the addiction or or can you achieve <laughs> redemption uh, around sweet craving? Can you dial it back, as the term used? Yeah, it, it can be dialed back. Now, it can be, become harder and harder the more, uh, the more addicted you might be to sugar, the harder it is to, to dial it back because the harder it is to, to give it up. But no matter where you are on that sugar spectrum, you can always dial it back to some degree, and 
um, it, like I said, it can can be harder to do if 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 you're more wired into that to the addiction element of it. But one of the one of the key aspects of sugar proof that we use is a seven day no added sugar challenge. Mm-hmm. Now again, this is not to say it's no sugar forever. It's just to see mm-hmm. can you if you go without it for seven days, you there'll be lots of benefits. Number one. You will, with your kids, learn to recognize things that you might not have realized. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a teachable it. moment, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll, we'll we'll get rid of those. We'll find a new peanut butter or a new salad dressing that doesn't have added sugar or a new energy bar or yogurt, whatever. Um, and then you'll identify the usual culprits, whether that's juice every morning or a high sugar cereal or cookies every night before bed or see what happens if you take those out and the first day or two this might be tricky it's going to create some irritability and you know yes withdrawal and yes absolutely and there's ways to deal with that we talk about it in the book and it may be difficult but in almost all cases that we um we have worked with Kids and adults will kind of emerge from the other end of that after a day or two and have a whole different uh, perspective. And taste buds will be refreshed mm-hmm. and kind of awakened almost. Is it possible for your, your brain and your taste buds to do a reset? Because I do notice that you know, at various times, you know, look, all of us, you know, at various times we go a little too far off the off the ranch on uh, sugar consumption and at various times where i've uh, cut back uh, i've noticed that uh, within a few days uh, i'm suddenly reawakened to the tastes of things that normally i don't consider sweet like red peppers don't necessarily consider them you know dessert quality but if you haven't had a lot of sugar um they taste relatively sweet and then i actually find you know if i do introduce something sweet it's cloyingly sweet you know, there's actually, I, I have a taste aversion to things that are overly sweetened. Yep. I, I, my taste buds and my brain circuits get resensitized to it. I think, I, I believe they can, and we've seen that happen. And um, it can happen at any age. And that's that's, that's the main goal of the seven-day reset is, is to reawaken, reset those taste buds. We've certainly seen in our family, we'll, we'll do it periodically, let's say after the holidays, you know, because everybody will, it's not uncommon. If you do this, you'll kind of gradually go back, and that's fine. You just have to redo the seven days. I'm, I'm the extreme. I'm like you, except even maybe more extreme because I, I, um, I, I, I I'm very sensitive to sweetness now and I can't, you know, believe that my kids will be drinking or eating something that is, that is super sweet because I have an aversion to it. Mm-hmm. But you, you, it, it, it's all a, it's it's all like a spectrum. Wherever you are on that spectrum, if if, if you're um, highly sensitive to, to sweet tastes, or you are over, or you have a very high preference for sweet tastes, wherever you are, you can dial it back by cutting sugar out for a period of days and then um, resetting that taste preference. Indeed. All right. Well, it's it's a wonderful uh, book because uh, in part one, uh, you lay out all the hidden dangers of sugar that are putting your child's health at risk, and uh, and you don't just leave us high and dry. In part two, uh, you and your co-writer 
uh, Emily Ventura, um, suggest practical tips on what you can do. And, uh, you know, I recommend the book very highly to parents and grandparents. You got to get this book because uh, it's really crucial uh, for the health of your child and your families. And, um, you know, we really have to turn this pandemic around because, you know, we talk about the pandemic of COVID-19, the devastation caused by this pandemic, the pandemic of excess uh, sugar consumption um, is uh, vastly beyond the toll of COVID-19, as bad as it is. So thank you very much for your contribution, Dr. Michael Gorin. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Ron, for uh, having us on the show and helping talk about sugar and sugar-proof and helping families raise sugar-proof kids who can self-regulate. Indeed. And there's a a website, right, Uh, where we can get more information about the book? Sugarproofkids.com or on social media, on Instagram and Facebook, we're at Sugarproof Kids. And you can get the book on all the usual virtual uh, bookstores that exist uh, these days. And lots of free resources on the website as well. Yeah, we have some of the recipes on our website. And um, more will be coming. We're working on Halloween right now. That's going to be interesting this year. Oh, no problem. Uh, Halloween's canceled this year, haven't you heard? <laughs> yeah, so we're working on you know strategies to enjoy Halloween under COVID-19. Okay, it should be easier this year because uh, the trick-or-treat bags will be less uh, overflowing, I think, yeah. uh, during uh, lockdown. But uh, still, I, you know, people will be going to the store, buying that candy that, uh, you know, we just hate to throw away so that, uh, you know, usually by uh, January, uh, we kind of get through our our stash of Halloween candy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, that was lovely. Thank you so much. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. As an Intelligent Medicine listener, you know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. But vetting your sources and tracking down the exact products you need can be a hassle. That's why I'm inviting you to browse my online supplement dispensary at drhoffmanstore.com. We stock only the highest quality supplements, some of which are very hard to find elsewhere. The very same supplements I prescribe to my patients and take myself. My specially curated professional-grade supplements are fulfilled via the Fullscript network. Fullscript is the safest and most convenient way to purchase my medical-grade supplements. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site. It's safe, secure, and HIPAA-compliant and offers world-class support. Just go to drhoffmanstore.com to sign up for your free Fullscript account. You'll also receive free shipping on all of your store orders. That's drhoffmanstore.com. drhoffmanstore.com.